Welcome to the podcast of Christ Church in Town in Jacksonville, Florida. We are seeking the renewal of all things in Jesus Christ. Towards that end, we are committed to cultivating personal transformation in Christ, an uncommon fellowship of racially and economically diverse individuals, and the flourishing of our neighbors. To join our local body in membership or financial support, visit ChristChurchInTown.org. It's warm in here, okay? And I just wanted to say that because I am conscious of it and you're conscious of it. And I want to say this, it's warm in here because of the providence of God. You know, somehow God said it's going to be warm in here this morning. And my prayer is that that doesn't become a distraction. But somehow maybe God even uses that to speak to us here this morning. So before I begin, I'd like to pray. Lord, we pray for the work of your spirit in our hearts, which takes your word and applies it to our lives and makes it come alive that we may see Jesus this morning. Lord, that's our prayer as we open your word. Now do a good work in us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I want to begin with a simple question. What is your image of Jesus? When you hear that precious name, what comes to mind? Uh, Growing up in Sunday school, I can remember a picture on the wall. It was Jesus holding a little lamb, surrounded by little children all around. He seemed so friendly, so kind. It was a very comforting and encouraging image for a young child. Uh, Not too much different from Mr. Rogers in his red sweater singing, It's a Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood. Uh, That Sunday school image of Jesus seems harmless enough. And I think it's an image that many people have of him, gentle Jesus, meek and mild. And no doubt there's truth to that image of Jesus. But did that Sunday school picture of Jesus tell the whole story? I don't think so. Because that Jesus was certainly not a threat to my way of managing my own life. And you see, I think we all have a tendency to domesticate Jesus. To, we want to tame him, in a sense. We, we don't want a Jesus who disrupts our lives, who challenges our view of the world, who claims an authority over us. Now, deep inside, we want a Jesus who will validate our decisions, one who will support our choices. We want a Jesus who will come to our aid in those challenging moments in life. But the movie script in our lives is one in which we want him to play a supporting role while we remain the star of the show. Or we want a Jesus we can control, one who is meek and mild. But the truth is, we can never control Jesus. And Jesus possesses a power beyond anything we can imagine, a power that is frightening in its effects. Now, earlier in Mark's Gospel, chapter 4, We're told of Jesus calming a violent storm. And with a word, he caused the winds to cease and the waves to grow calm. His disciples in the boat were more terrified by his exercise of power than they were by the storm itself. And they asked each other, who is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? Who is this man? You see, that's the central question that all four of the Gospels set out to answer. Who is this man 
In our passage this morning, we see that Jesus can not only calm a violent storm that threatens from the outside in the world of nature, Jesus can also calm a violent storm that rages from within a human life. And in both of these episodes, the, uh, the power of Jesus prevails over the forces of chaos and, and destruction, and the effect of that display of power on those who see it is fear. Who is this man? Is he the gentle shepherd who holds the lambs in his arms, welcoming little children to come to him? Yes, he is that, but he's so much more. So I want us to look again at that passage that was just read from Mark chapter 5. Mark chapter 5, beginning at verse 1, Jesus, with his disciples, went across the lake to the region of the Gerasenes. Now, that location is not really certain, but it would have been on the eastern shore of the Sea of Galilee in an area called the Decapolis, the Ten Cities. It was ruled by the Romans, and it was inhabited by Gentiles. Now, we don't know why Jesus decided to go there. But when he got out of the boat, a man with an unclean spirit came from the tombs to meet him. This man lived in the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, we read, not even with a chain, for he had often been chained hand and foot, but he tore the chains apart, broke the irons on his feet. No one was strong enough to subdue him. I want you to consider for a moment the, the wretched condition of this man. And I could say there is probably no one in the whole Bible who is described in such a dismal state. He is nothing if not miserable and pitiable, pathetic. The forces of evil had so overtaken him that he'd, he'd become totally wild in his behavior. He'd become savage and uncontrollable. Uh, no doubt those around him had tried. They'd done everything to try to restrain him, even to the point of binding him with chains. But like a ferocious beast, he'd, he'd wrenched the chains apart. He'd broken the shackles in pieces. No human power could control him. It was like trying to rein in a thousand-pound gorilla. And you could say that this man had become a subhuman. Uh, there was nothing left to do but to banish him from all human habitation. Luke, in his account, tells us that for a long time this man had not worn clothes, nor had he lived in a house he was forced to live among the tombs in the realm of the dead. He was as good as dead to those who knew him. But that's not the end of it. Verse 5, we read, Night and day among the tombs and in the hills he would cry out and cut himself with stones. Uh, what a terror he must have been to the people of that region. Just imagine the, the frightful shrieks echoing in the night. Just think of the parents warning their children to stay away from those tombs. Don't, don't go wandering in those hills. There's a madman out there. Or maybe, maybe the parents use that as a threat to their kids. If you don't obey me, I'll throw you to that madman. I'm sure that would do it. But what a, what a terror he was even to himself, engaging in acts of self-mutilation, cutting himself with stones, bleeding and crying out in agony night and day. Uh, it's hard to imagine a more wretched existence than this. And here I think we see portrayed the ugliness of evil. This is what the work of the devil looks like when it is unleashed in all its fury in a human life. And so I say, don't ever be deceived. 
The devil is not some fun-loving spirit who enjoys parties and festive gatherings where people can be entertained and everybody has a good time. Uh, isn't that the way he's often portrayed? I think of the Fox uh, TV series that ran a few years ago entitled Lucifer. In the storyline of this show, the devil abandons his throne in hell to assume human form in Los Angeles. And on their website, Fox said it presents the devil as, quote, charming, charismatic, and devilishly handsome, far more attractive than the angel who speaks for God on the show. Uh, the devil is fun. It is goodness, it is godliness that's depicted in movies and TV as straight-laced and boring and lifeless. Don't believe it. Don't believe it. Just look at this man. Here is a man oppressed by demonic forces, and it is an ugly, wretched picture. For you see, Jesus tells us that the devil is a murderer from the beginning. He is out to destroy the good work of God, and he wants to destroy you. And the devil is crafty and deceitful. He will suck you in with promises of happiness. But his form of happiness is a short-lived and very shallow pleasure. It's the happiness of pornography or the happiness of heroin, a, a transient high that seduces you and ultimately leads to death and destruction. The devil hates God and he hates you. He will corrupt, pervert, distort, and finally destroy your very humanity. And we need to get that into our heads. Evil is ugly, it is self-destructive, and it leads to death. For you see, God created us as human beings in his image for his own glory. But evil corrupts the human person. It perverts what is beautiful and turns it into something that is ugly and degrading, and that's why God hates evil, and so should we. Again, just look at the wretchedness of this man, running around naked among the tombs in the realm of the dead, night and day, crying out, cutting himself with stones. This is a picture of hell. And so, to Jewish ears, the evil of this situation is compounded by the fact that, that this man was surrounded by people employed in an unclean occupation of farming unclean pigs, all in the unclean territory inhabited by unclean Gentiles. As far as they were concerned, this was the devil's land. This is the red light district. Or we might say it's an area infected with something like the Ebola virus. Danger, don't go there. You may die. But into that spiritual slime, that domain of death, Jesus enters. Jesus shows up where no one else would dare to go. For what did he say? It's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners. And so he does. Jesus comes to the region of the Gerasenes. And immediately there is a confrontation. The man from the tombs comes to meet Jesus. Verse 6. When he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and fell on his knees in front of him. Now, make no mistake, this man, controlled as he was by evil spirits, this man knew who Jesus was. He knew who Jesus was better than Jesus' own disciples. And so we read in verse 7, he shouted at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? 
And falling on his knees here was, was a sign of submission to one who was more powerful than he was. But it was not a willing submission. This was not an act of faith. This was an act of desperation, pleading for leniency before one who had the power to destroy him. He knew that this Jesus possessed the power of the most high God. Jesus had an authority that could not be crossed. In God's name, he says, don't torment me, don't torture me, he said. For Jesus had said, come out of this man, you unclean spirit. Now Luke adds that they begged Jesus repeatedly not to order them to go into the abyss. You see, the, the spirit knew who Jesus was. They also knew what he deserved from Jesus. Punishment, banishment, ultimately his destiny was in the abyss, hell itself, that eternal lake of fire. Verse 9, then Jesus asked him, what is your name? My name is Legion, he replied, for we are many. Legion, that's a military term. It designated the largest troop unit in the Roman army, some 6,000 soldiers. That was the Roman legion. And the Romans ruled the world, and they were in control of that land of the Decapolis. And this name suggests something of the oppressive power of those demonic forces that have taken over this man. He was subject to a parasitic invading army that would eventually destroy its host. But that legion power, it was no match for Jesus, and the demons knew it. And here we come to one of the most puzzling parts of the story. Verse 10, the demons begged Jesus again and again not to send them out of the area. Now, we don't know why the demons would make such a request. Perhaps there was a sense that this Gentile area was a demonic stronghold and that it was safe from the intrusion of the kingdom that Jesus came to bring. We don't know. But the story continues in verse 11. A large herd of pigs was feeding on the nearby hillside. The demons begged Jesus, send us among the pigs, allow us to go into them. He gave them permission. By this, you see who has authority here. He gave them permission, and the evil spirits came out and went into the pigs. The herd, about 2,000 in number, rushed down the steep bank into the lake and were drowned. Ah, the pigs, the pigs. What is going on here? 2,000 pigs, that's a lot of bacon, to say the least. Uh, that could feed an army, and perhaps it did. The Roman army was, was based in this area. The poor pigs and the poor pig farmers. I mean, it seems like a senseless slaughter of innocent animals, and this event uh, offends our modern sensibilities to no end, especially if you've ever encountered the endearing pig Wilbur made famous in the book Charlotte's Web. And, and this is one of the passages that is mentioned by the renowned 20th century atheist and philosopher Bertrand Russell in his famous article entitled, Why I Am Not a Christian. Uh, he, he said, how could anyone believe in a Messiah who would allow such needless cruelty that destroyed these pigs and decimated these pig farmers? So what are we to make of these pigs? Well, we do notice that all of the gospel writers who record the story pass over this event with no comment. There's no indication that it was a moral problem for them. Their interests lie elsewhere. But we all want to know, why does Jesus allow the demons to go into these pigs? Well, the bottom line is, I don't know. 
other than the fact that the unclean spirits somehow belong in those unclean animals. But I can't say how this episode of the pigs functions in this story. And I appreciate what uh, Pastor Alistair Begg has to say on this when he explores this problem of the pigs using four Ps. First, he says, the fate of the pigs demonstrates the ultimate purpose of the demons. Make no mistake, the demonic powers deal in death. That is their desire, that is their purpose, and the death of 2,000 pigs makes that very clear. Second, this act demonstrates the power of Jesus over these demonic forces. Just as Jesus demonstrates his authority to forgive sins for all to see by enabling a paralytic to get up and walk, so here the power of Jesus over the demons is given visible proof in the death of these pigs. Third, this dramatic end establishes without any doubt the permanence of the deliverance Jesus brought about in the life of this man. If he was ever led to doubt whether he'd really been set free, if he began to wonder if it could really be true, he had only to look back at those pigs hurtling down the steep bank to know that legion had been forever banished from his life. And finally, this episode gives us a perspective that the deliverance of one man is certainly worth 2,000 pigs. With all due respect to the animal lovers of PETA, any culture that values animal life more than human life is on the road to destruction. Illustration of this, I think of the movie Martian. I don't know if you've seen it a few years back. Well, it, it tells the futuristic story of an expedition to the planet Mars in which one of the astronauts is thought to have been left dead on Mars when the rest of the crew narrowly escapes from the planet in the midst of a Martian storm. Only he isn't dead, and later the crew and the American Space Agency discover that he isn't dead, and the rest of the movie shows the space agency launching a massive effort costing billions of dollars to rescue that one man. And, spoiler alert, when they do rescue him, the whole world celebrates. You see, this is the value of one human life. What did Jesus say? How much more valuable is a man than a sheep? Or he might have said, a pig? or lots of pigs. Now, I'm sorry for the pigs, and I'm sorry for the economic loss of the pig farmers, but one human life is worth far more than 2,000 pigs. But 2,000 pigs is a lot of pigs. And surely those tending the pigs were not pleased by what happened. Uh, they were probably not the owners of the pigs. They were just the hired hands, and the pig owners were not going to look kindly on pig tenders who allowed the whole herd to go hurling down a cliff to their death. So the pig tenders wanted to hurry into town to tell their version of the events. And as you might expect, the news traveled fast. We read in verse 14, the people went out to see what had happened. And when they came to Jesus, they saw the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons sitting there dressed, and in his right mind. The raging storm ravaging this man's life has been calmed. You might even say his very humanity has been restored. No longer is he running through the tombs naked in a kind of crazed frenzy like a rabid dog. Instead, he's sitting, dressed, and in his right mind. Such is the power of Jesus to rescue 
and to restore. It's a beautiful picture of redemption, isn't it? So were the people pleased to have this minister to their community restored to them? Did they celebrate and praise Jesus for this great work? Did they welcome him into their towns and invite him into their lives? No, not at all. Verse 17, then the people began to plead with Jesus to leave their region. Why? Why this reaction? Well, it could have all been about the pigs. They were upset about losing their livelihood, the source of their wealth. That was more important to them than the man who had been saved. But there's indications here in the story that it was more than that. Back in verse 15, Mark tells us that when they came to Jesus, they saw the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons sitting there, dressed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. They were afraid. Now, as I said earlier, this isn't the first time we see this reaction in the Gospels. When the disciples saw Jesus calm a raging storm, they were terrified, and so it is here. The storm in this man's life has been stilled through the divine power of Jesus, the demonic spirit that destroyed this man's life has been vanquished. The man's humanity is restored, and this elicits fear from all those who see it. You see, they feel they're in the presence of a power beyond their imagination. And maybe you've had a taste of that when you're caught in one of those violent uh, Florida thunderstorms like, like we had the other night, the flash of lightning, the cracking of thunder. It, it comes down like it's 10 feet away from you. You feel very small and vulnerable. It's, it's frightening. And here the demonstration of the power of Jesus elicits fear. Later in the gospel, God revealed something of his glory in, in Jesus on what is called the Mount of Transfiguration. And when the disciples saw it, we read that they were frightened. When they saw Jesus coming to them walking on the water, we read that they were terrified. On that first Easter day, when after coming to the tomb, the women realized that Jesus had been raised from the dead and trembling and bewildered, they fled from the tomb and said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. You know, people often say it. They say, if only I could see a miracle. If only God would reveal the glory of Jesus to me in some spectacular way, then I would believe. But I think the gospel suggests otherwise. Don't kid yourself. If you were to see something of the glory and power of Jesus Christ, your first reaction would not be excited faith, but deathly fear if Jesus, in all his resurrected glory, were to come into this room here this morning, I suspect our first reaction would be fear and trembling. And so I think something of that is going on in this story when they, they saw this demon-possessed man, this man who had been violently uncontrollable, sitting still, clothed, and in his right mind. They didn't know what to think. Who is this man? who had the power to overcome such evil forces. They were terrified by this man, Jesus. They didn't understand him. His divine power was outside their experience. It was frightening. In him, they had perceived a reality beyond their ability to grasp and control, a reality that stands over them and us. And I think this is really what this passage is all about, isn't it? Jesus brings the power and presence 
of God himself into our world. And truth be told, when we see him in this way, Jesus frightens us. For God frightens us. We hide from him. His authority is a threat to our own lives. So in this episode, in the life of Jesus, the people of that country rejected him. They sent Jesus away. And don't we do that too? When Jesus comes a little too close to demanding, to threatening, we send him away. And here in verse 18, we see Jesus getting into the boat to leave that region of the Gerasenes. Jesus doesn't stay where he's not wanted. But in contrast, look at the man man who had been rescued and restored. He doesn't send Jesus away. No, he is in his right mind now. And so he wants to be with Jesus. Verse 18, as Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with him. But Jesus had other plans for this man. Jesus sends him out. He now has a mission. Verse 19, go home to your family and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. So the man went away and began to tell in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And all the people were amazed. Again, Mark makes the point, Jesus does only what the Lord God can do. In Jesus, the Lord God is at work in power and in mercy. Quite a story, isn't it? And you might be thinking, how does all this apply to me? I mean, this is all very nice, but I'm certainly not that man. I may have seen some people wandering around downtown Jacksonville that I thought might be like that man, but it's not me. No. You're not that man. Neither am I. That doesn't mean that you and I are nothing like that man. What does the Bible say? In Ephesians chapter 2, Paul writes, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. I want to emphasize here that the Christian message is not a self-help program for moral improvement. It's not about a person deciding to get serious about religion and coming to church, trying to clean up their life by striving to be good. That is not it at all. You see, the Christian message is far more radical than that. The Bible says that by nature, we were all zombies, the walking dead. We were without spiritual life. We were all under the sway of the spiritual forces of evil at work in this world. We were all under the power of the ruler of the kingdom of the air. That is the devil. We were held captive by his power, whether we realized it or not, and all the better, as far as he is concerned, if we never realize it at all. Now, oh, sure, we don't run around naked in the tombs. We're much more sophisticated than that, and the devil is much too devious to show his hand so blatantly. Subtle and socially approved sins are enough to keep us in his grip. Pride and greed and envy, various forms of idolatry, throw in a little lust and gluttony, that will do quite well. They are ugly enough. 
You see, all of these are ways that our humanity is defiled. And we become less than what we were created to be as the image of God in the world. We fail to bring glory to God by reflecting back to him his own nature. And such is our state. And we are powerless to, to save ourselves from it. This is the captivity that each of us was involved in, in our selfish desires. Now, this is not a flattering diagnosis of humanity, is it? No wonder people often get offended by what the Bible has to say, but sometimes the truth hurts. But the truth also brings with it the possibility of redemption through the mercy of God. For the gospel tells us that in Jesus Christ, God has a remedy for our wretched condition. He has come to bind the strong man who rules over us so that he can plunder his house. God has come in his son to set us free from the power of the evil one and to remake us in his own image. In other words, he wants to make us more human with the humanity that is that rightly reflects the image of God, humanity as it was created to be, the humanity embodied in Jesus himself, that and nothing less is what Jesus has come to do. But for that to happen, we've got to be made alive all over again. And that's why Paul says, but because of his great love for us, God who is rich in mercy made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. So see, God's purpose for us in Christ is to save us from all the forces of evil at work in this world so that he might see us sitting, dressed, and in our right minds. And so this story in the gospel has been preserved for us for almost 2,000 years to assure us that Jesus has the power to do just that. He wants to calm the, the chaos that rages in our conflicted hearts. He's come to bring rest and peace to a troubled life. And there may be some here this morning who say to yourself, that, that is me, that wild and crazy man. I'm gripped by forces within me that I cannot control. I, I keep doing things that are self-destructive as if I'm cutting myself with stones. I need the power of Jesus to set me free. I want what he can give. So I urge you to turn to him in faith. Cry out to him to give you his life. Even if it costs you a few pigs, it would be worth it now and forever. And for others here, those who are Christians here this morning, first let me just say, uh, don't try to tame Jesus. Appreciate afresh here today his power, his authority. It is frightening. For when, you see, when you see Jesus in this story, you, you will say, what can the world throw at me that he can't overcome? Why should I be frightened if I, if I am fearful of Jesus? Why should I be frightened of sickness or even death itself? For Jesus is the son of the most high God. Nothing is beyond his control. And he must be seen to be so powerful that it, 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 it frightens us. And then if you're a Christian here today, let this story remind you of what the Lord has done for you. He snatched you from the clutches of the devil. He's given you new life. He's caused you to be born again into the family of God. 
And he has done that by entering into the very depths of our wretched human experience. You see, Jesus has gone to the places that are most evil and unclean. He's entered into the place of death. He's gone to Golgotha. He's he's allowed himself to be lacerated with the whips of his oppressors. Jesus has been nailed to a Roman cross, flanked by two terrorists. He hangs naked and bleeding. He cries out in his spiritual pain as he bears our sins upon himself. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's where Jesus has gone to seek us out, to rescue us, to restore us to bring us to share in his new humanity. For it's in his atoning death for our sins and through the glorious resurrection from the dead that Jesus gains the victory over the devil. Do you see it? Do you appreciate what the Lord has done for you? Then won't you listen to what he says? Go and tell. Tell how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. So will you send Jesus away today? Or will you be sent by him? That's the choice he sets before us this morning. So let's pray. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, our prayer has been that your spirit would open our eyes to see Jesus afresh here this morning that we would see him in all his glory and all his power, his authority and his mercy. And Lord, we pray that we would draw near to him and we would receive what he has to offer for us, that we would submit our lives to him. And as we do, we would appreciate all that he has done for us. And then, Lord, that we would go as he sends us to be his mouthpiece, to speak of the wonderful things of his mercy and grace. Oh, Lord, work in our hearts. May we praise him who rescues us from every evil attack and will bring us safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen and amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you would like more information or would like to help support the local body of Christ Church in town, please visit our website at ChristChurchInTown.org.